Bottom of the 12th inning. Well, the tying run is at second, but the game right now is at the plate. And Lundu coming up. Lundu coming up. We've got Ishikawa and Chris Kendrick. David Ortiz. George Brett. Joe Carter is the batter. Now listen to the ovation. As he comes up to the plate. And he gets his pitch. I want him to drive one. Can't wait. 3-2. It's right to right. That's just like what's entertainment for me now, you know? I like that Jimmy the Greek moment that happens in sports, you know? Like once every four or five years, you know that? Like some 50, 55-year-old white dude tries to explain why black people are kicking the shit out of white people in practically every major sport, you know? And it always goes down the same way, right? There's always like three white dudes and the one white dude in the middle, he's always like the guy with like the theory. You know, he's always like, you know, it seems these, uh, these African-American athletes, they, uh, they seem to have this, uh, this quick twitch. Uh, muscle fiber, you know, there's a uh, slow twitch and there's uh, this quick twitch and the second the dude says that, like the other two white dudes start like sliding out of frame, like they're this guy's getting fired and I'm not going to be part of this highlight. Nice knowing your neck, keep that seat warm, right? And the dude in the middle, he's just like hell bent on getting fired, you know, he just, he starts like bringing up slavery and evidently they're reading the strongest man with the strongest woman and that quick twitch and literally 20 minutes later that dude's on TV, he's like fired, right? He's crying, his family's standing there, he's got like a box of shit from his desk with like an Emmy sticking out. He's like, I don't know what I said, I was just talking about the quick twitch and the slow twitch and I was, wasn't just trying to make a point. No, I love that. I love seeing people mess up their careers like that. It's just funny to me. Plus, I gotta admit, as a white dude, on some level, I have to believe in that theory because it's like, are white dudes that bad at basketball? I can't even watch the NBA anymore, man. It's like every highlight, the white dude's like that, the black dude has like his nuts in his face. Fucking laugh! I'm just sitting at home like, for the love of God, tackle the guy. Jesus Christ, get out of the way. Do you ever get tired of those two nuts flying over your head? You know you're gonna be on Sports Center. Just get out of the way. Dude, I'm telling you, there's got to be something to that theory. I saw this show one time on Runaway Slaves. It was one of the most amazing programs I've ever seen in my life. Dude, when you ran away as a slave, you just didn't run to the end of the driveway and be like, ah, fuck that job, just start walking down the street. Dude, you had to like run through whole states. There's dogs chasing you, you're hurtling shit, you're swimming. Those were the first fucking triathletes. And there was nobody helping him out. There was no dude on the side of the road like, come on, man, two more states, you're in Ohio. Suck it up, you're looking good, looking good. Hey, you... Dude, you are on your own. Is it any wonder? 250, 300 years of that shit, and then I'm going to D you up in gym class? It ain't happening. I come from hundreds of years of alcoholics. I got like half a liver, you know what I mean? It's just... You know what's funny to me about that stuff? You can't even like, you know, I obviously know that, that theory is crazy, but it's just like you can't even bring up how well black people do, are doing in sports. Everybody gets all weird about it, which I don't understand because it's like a compliment, you know? 
Like, feel how weird it is right now. You know, I just brought that shit up. I'm saying something good, right? I saw, I saw a coach get in trouble for that shit. Like, his team was like 0-6 or something. They just couldn't win. And every week, the press was just getting on him more and more and more, right? And the dude, he was just like flustered. And he had like a moment of honesty. They were like, why can't you guys win a game? He's like, oh, you know, oh, the offense isn't getting it done. You know, defense, you know, they're too slow. And it just run out. Tell me, we got to get some more black guys in this team. But I'm telling you, it's not... And immediately, everyone started freaking out like they had no idea what this dude was talking about. It's like, are you watching Sports Center, or do you see the Olympics? Like, I love the hundred meter dash, right? There's always, there's always like, like, like nine black dudes and that that one token white guy in like lane eight. And I'm just sitting there going, come on, man, one time, just one time, just, just win the bronze, just do what you got to do. And the white dude always stays with him to like the first turn, then he like fucking blows out his hand. Those other eight black dudes are like, <laughs> where's that white dude the next Olympics? He's like up in the broadcast booth, his career's over. He's, where, he's like a commentator. Yeah, it's gonna be a great race. Still can't feel my fucking toes, but I'm telling you. No, I don't get it. It's like a compliment. We're saying you, you, you're fast. That's a good thing, right? People start all freaking out. Oh, you're acting like that's all we can do. You're saying we can't be scientists. No, we're not. All we're saying is if there was a race through the microscopes, you fuckers would win. <laughs> we're just saying that you're fast. You get there first. Your lap coat would be flapping in the wind. I'd get there like three minutes later all cramped up. Are you, are you looking at bacteria? No, you go first. You just go first. Jesus Christ. There's a bobo. The guy ran by a bobo in street shoes. I've never seen that before in my life. No, I, I get into those arguments all the time. All the time. Friends of mine will be like, well, how come anytime a black athlete does something, they say it's an athletic move. Anytime a white athlete does it, they say it's an intelligent move. And it's like, well, fair enough, man. It just, just depends on what you're doing. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, if you read a defense, white or black, that's an intelligent move, right? But if you take off from the foul line, jump over nine other dudes and throw the shit down, those other nine guys aren't standing there like, fuck, why didn't I think of that shit? Here I am, dribbling around, guys. I think that's some superhero shit. You have like a cake flapping in the wind with a big S on your chest. I'm telling you, man, that, that's the funny thing about Hitler. Just let me finish. Let, let me work my way. Let me work my way through this idea. No, that's my, my favorite, my favorite sports clip is that Jesse Owens shit. I just love it because their whole angle was fucked up. He made Hitler leave in like the third quarter, right? He's putting down his number one finger, just fucking walking out of the stadium. Jesus Christ. Their whole thing was like, we are going to create a superior race. It's like, dude, I think we accidentally already did that. Now we sent a select group of people to the gym every day for a couple hundred years. That's paying dividends. They're fucking dunking on us every day. Dude, how quiet was that limo ride home with Hitler? You know what I'm saying? You know he was talking crazy shit when they were on the way there. They were all amped up. They are going to dominate Sieg Heil. Just going off. That whole ride home, they're just sitting there all quiet. You're sitting next to an even angrier than usual Adolf Hitler. Trying to make some sort of small talk. Like, hey, it is one nice day, isn't it? You know, nice poop. 
Should we pick him up? He has Bud Light. He has an axe. But he has Bud Light. And an axe. I'm sure there's a reason for it. Hey, buddy. What's with the axe? It's a bottle opener. Hop in. Refreshingly smooth Bud Light. Always worth it. Look, here's Bud Light. In a chainsaw. Slow-mo, welcome to my dojo, those other pods are so-so, I'm too light, bro, yo, focus like a GoPro, ripping up this promo, check out the scoreboard, bring something with no knows, it's going, it's going, it's going, yo, it's gone, your heart just stopped, cause Jake got strong and mighty, undefeated, I mean it, pull up the pod, scroll it down and read it, written, produced, directed, and mixed, dong on your lips and Ozzie Smith backflips, pick a tip, any tip, get onto it, I got ridiculous pods without bossing it, you sit at home crying like the Girl, while I spread the gospel around the world, yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed in smooth with the groove to make ears want to listen. Add a little clay and some rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up. You think another way, rap back, but this ain't no ad tag. My hobby's to rhyme, some people try to be black, but bad. About time I come out, call the show BKP and let me turn it out, yo. Name Jake the Snake, Border 71. Date, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns. Your experience, I've been a witness to glory, and that's why. I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back into Captain Kirk Chair Shields, down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, Seamans? What's juicy? Welcome back for another week here at the Dojo for yet another edition of the Baseball Pod Spanning the Globe, Backwards K-Pod. Hello, everybody. I'm Jake Robson. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. And the 2023 season, well, the postseason, it's underway. And quite honestly, much like the regular season, it has been a chock full of surprises. The regular season monsters, Atlanta, the Dodgers, the Orioles, they've been underwhelming to say the least. Atlanta, Atlanta they managed to come back win over Philly in game two. And really, a game of two halves has 
The Phillies jumped out to a 4 to nothing lead by the 5th, only to see the Braves come back and score five unanswered runs between the 6th, 7th, and 8th innings. So, look, maybe, I, you know, I don't know, maybe that late-inning surge there and has awoken the Atlanta bats because, you know, they've been stuck in the malaise for a week while the wild-card round was being played. And I can say the same for both the Dodgers, who are down 3 to nothing, uh, three to 1 to the Snakes in the top of the fifth right now. And L.A. only has two hits so far. In game one, they lost 11 to 2 and only had four runs. So, you know, sleepy bats. The Orioles... They're in the same boat, finding themselves in a deep 2 nothing hole against the Texas Rangers. And with no room for error as the series shifts to Arlington, Texas, hopefully the Orioles, who hadn't been swept all year, in fact, they haven't been swept by anyone since Adley Rockstar came up, but hopefully as an Orioles fan, you know, the ninth inning of Game 2, where the Birds scored three runs on that god-awful Texas Rangers bully, I got, you know, as a beloved Orioles fan, man, I got to pray that that's an omen of better things to come offensively for the club, or, you know, it's ding-ding. The Orioles youngsters, quite awesome. You know, they look tense in the early goings of game two. The Twins and Strohs are knotted at one game apiece. And as I speak, Arizona was up on the Dodgers 3-1 to in the fifth, and the Snakes are up one game to nothing going into tonight. And... I'll be honest, folks. I think the number one and number two seeded division winners are almost at a disadvantage having to wait for these wild card series to play out. You know, when you're playing winning baseball, no one wants to break the momentum by stop playing. Ah, man, you want to play more. And the fact that the first two years of this format, there have been like six of eight sweeps of the wild card series. So. Maybe there needs to be a tweaking of this format. Now, what that entails, I'm not sure. I don't even have an answer to that. I'm not nearly smart enough to figure that out. Maybe one of you beautiful-minded C-Meds have an answer. Drop me a line at backwardskpod at gmail.com. Tell me your solution. I mean, I personally... I'd like the one-game playoff, but I know I'm in the minority there, and I, I truly do understand the logic that says a team's future shouldn't be based on a one-game elimination after playing 162-game seasons. I get it. I, I do get it on some level. I really don't have an answer to the dilemma. I know I don't like hot teams sitting around for a week watching other people play baseball. I almost think in this format, it is better to win a wild card spot unless you are like this grizzled, hardened postseason veteran team like the Houston Astros. But look, you know, still a lot of baseball left. For some teams, there is more than others as the field is whittling down on its way to the 2023 World Series. And BKP will be there every step of the way. Giving you the comprehensive weekly breakdown. But look, I'm ready to put my foot into this show as I have one of the most fascinating games ever played that most people know very little about. This week, we will be talking about the time when the Wichita Ku Klux Klan number 6 challenged the all-black Negro League's baseball team, the Wichita Monrovians. 
And we got a lot of meat on them bones to cut through and digest. So let's get right after it. Break into this watershed baseball moment. Uh, yeah, I'm going to break it down the best I can, quite honestly. I see the catcher is throwing that rock down to second base. Looks like the pitcher's warmed up. The infield is tossing that seat around the infield. The umpires play, call and play ball. So I'd like to get you C-Meds to kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye here at Terrapin Station. Clear the platform and hop on to our BKP time travel choo-choo. As I call, all aboard. And this week, I'm going to set our time and destination uh, for June 21st, 1925 at the baseball field that was known as Island Park on Ackerman Island in Wichita, Kansas. Almost a hundred years ago, to a game that lives in relative obscurity as a true baseball secret. A game between the Ku Klux Klan number six and the all-black Wichita Monrovians from the Colored Western League. And here, let's look at a little bit of this backstory going for your priest while I bend baseball space and time to get us to old Ackerman Park. In a short time, really, it was... It was only one season. The Wichita Monrovians experienced a wildly successful 1924 campaign going 15-2-8 by most accredited baseball historians. Since then, the memories, accounts, and historical context of that team have slowly been lost to time like sand in the wind. In fact, during my research on this story, very little is even known about the roster for the Wichita Negro League team. The only three names on the Wichita roster I came across was a Thomas Jefferson Young. The fellas called him T-Baby. And I learned about him only because of the fanfare and newspaper articles surrounding him a year later when he moves on to play for the Kansas City Monarchs as well as his teammates Newt Joseph and Andy Cooper. But there was one peculiar game during that season that has survived the mythos of the Monrovians team, albeit, you know, albeit barely. And that was their matchup versus the Wichita Ku Klux Klan, number six. The Monrovians played at their own ballpark, nestled into the black community of Wichita at the corner of 12th and Mosley Street. The city's white teams played at Island Park on Ackerman Island, but it wasn't a segregated ballpark. Blacks played there, Jews played there, Latinos. Well, the Sacrament Island, it's a sandbar that sat in the middle of the Arkansas River. And if you ever get a chance, you need to get on your Google machine and search bar Island Park, Ackerman Island. It's a very cool jewel black stadium sitting in the middle of the river. I never had any idea about that throwback crib right there. Very, very cool. And this story, this week, 
is a little different than what I usually do here at BKP, folks. Each one of us in the audience, myself included, will be left to our own devices to see the action on the field for this event. There will be no smell of freshly cut grass, nor the aroma of hot dogs and cotton candy, no powerful feeling of an entire community uniting against an antagonistic entity, no sound of baseball skidding across the dirt into an infielder's glove, or his grunt as he throws the ball across the diamond, nor the pop of that first baseman's mitt, unless you choose to have it there. The list of what I don't know about this game by far supersedes what I do know. And we can all imagine being there with our own feelings, thoughts, and imagery, but due to a conspicuous lack of historical data and record about that game, we will never truly feel what they felt. We can never hear what they heard or see exactly what they saw. What endures from that day, after nearly a century later, is a victory on the diamond for the Monrovians against a racist organization fighting hard to not become obsolete in the state of Kansas. The Monrovians' legacy endures because of their victory over hateful oppression. The black neighborhoods in Wichita were tight-knit communities that looked out for one another in the face of segregation, economic and educational challenges. And the Monrovians baseball team were reflective of the community values of the black population in Wichita as they were looked upon as a shining light in the midst of dark times. Not only for their top-shelf liquor baseball abilities that they provided in entertainment, but also due to their influence and identity in the community, both economically and philanthropically. Most hardcore baseball fans outside of Kansas haven't even heard of the Monrovians, even though they were the first all-black team in Wichita. At their inception, they were originally called the Black Wonders. Shortly thereafter, club president J.M. Booker changed their name to the Monrovians until the cap, and, and that was after the capital of Liberia, Africa. And sidebar here, folks. So, in 1816, with the aim of establishing a self-sufficient colony for emancipated American slaves, uh, something that had already been accomplished in Freetown. The first group of African-American settlers arrive in West Africa from America under the auspice of the American Colonization Society and with the support of the United States government. Those future colonists landed at Sherbrooke Island in what is now known today as Sierra Leone. On January 7th, 1822, a ship took these very same settlers to Dazo Island, at the mouth of the Mezzerado River. They subsequently went ashore at Cape Mezzerado and established a city that they called Christopolis. Now, two years later, the city was renamed Monrovia after fifth president of the United States, James Monroe, who was a prominent supporter of developing the city as a place to relocate formerly enslaved free black people from America, as well as the Caribbean island, as an alternative to abolishing the institution of slavery in America. 
1845, there was a constitutional convention in Monrovia. A document was drafted two years later. It was adopted as the constitution of the newly independent and sovereign country. Thus the name Liberia, meaning liberty. Monrovia, along with Washington, D.C., are the only two capitals of countries in the world named after an American president. Many of Liberia's citizens today can trace their heritage back to their freed forefathers and mothers of American slaves. And I feel like I need to make it clear as we creep closer to this wormhole through the Monrovian's name. Uh, The name only lasted a year. The team would have many name changes throughout their history, but they were not just a flash in the pan, even though their accomplishments have largely been lost to time. In fact, the franchise lasted longer than most. They were able to pull off the almost unimaginable feat of buying their own stadium, Monrovia Park, at the corner of 12th and Mosley. And most Negro League teams of the days, they had to schedule their games in conjunction with other teams to rent their cribs for games. It was one of the few ballparks where whites and blacks sat together and enjoyed the game. This was a resilient organization that lasted for a long time in an environment that was quite hostile towards black-toned baseball ventures for the most part. The Monrovians understood their importance, importance extended beyond the walls of Monrovia Park. Yes, they were pro- pros who played for money, and most of the roster was comprised of dudes who wanted to advance in their sport as high as the gentlemen's agreement would let them. But they also played to advance the cause of their race. Proceeds and percentages of the profit from the gate were allocated to black-owned businesses in Wichita, most notably the Phyllis Wheatley Children's Home. At their core, the Monrovians were an indelible force for good throughout Wichita. Whether they were delighting fans at their home park or traveling around the region to play anyone who agreed to a game, the park was almost always full, and the team loved having a positive impact on the surrounding community. The neighborhood and the team had a true synergy. They weren't just a bunch of ball players counting the cash given to them by fans before driving off for another gate. Times were tough all over America and black communities at this time, but Wichita, Kansas in 1925 was a lot better off than most black neighborhoods of the day. And a huge part of that was the giving nature of the Negro League Ball Club. So, you may have asked yourself in the process of us making this trip to our date and destiny, why in the world would either team agree to play this game? Well, the fact that the game was ever played in the first place, it kind of reveals the context of the state of race relations in Kansas during the mid-1920s. A state that always, for the most part, had an ambiguous racial record going all the way back to John Brown. And having fought for freedoms in Europe during World War I, and which blacks served with distinction both as soldiers abroad and in factories back home, 
America did very little to prevent the, the hardening stance of the racial divide on its own soil. During the Red Summer of 1919, 25 race riots broke out across the country, and two years later, the Tulsa Massacre goes down, and 35 black residents in the influential and successful city were killed in a 24-hour span. A grand jury legitimized the mass lynchings, blaming the horrific mass murder as agitation among the Negroes for social equality. So, the early 20s saw what historians call the Great Northern Drive. And that saw hundreds of thousands of blacks migrate from the South northward to benefit from factory jobs during the Industrial Boom. From 1910 to 1930, 1.5 million blacks left the South, headed for northern cities. And many of them passed through the gateway city of Kansas City, just east of Wichita. Many black Americans settled in Kansas because the state actively recruited them to stay. And Kansas was seen as a progressive state that allowed black land ownership in the 1870s. Baseball during this era was, well, was rebranding itself as the national pastime in the wake of the 1919 Black Sox scandal, threatening its integrity. Baseball does rebound in the 20s for a myriad of reasons. Babe Ruth is changing the way the game is played with an incredible and vulgar display of power. Because of his press coverage, uh, Because of this, the press coverage begins to expand. You had playground movements, school athletic and park programs for kids. Baseball had a moral tone and a reputation for civility that appealed to women. The sport began to be celebrated in song and in the day's pop culture. The automobile boom kicks in, giving fans easier access to games who otherwise live too far from a stadium to attend, and the advent of telegraph and electric scoreboards enables fans throughout the country to monitor the progress of a game remotely. In 1922, the Monrovians, an 8-ball club from Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Kansas, banded together to form the Western Colored League to counter-program the Wichita Izzies of the White Western League. And like most Negro Leagues, the Western Color League was loosely ran and faced daunting logistical and fiscal challenges, and it could never overcome the infighting among its members. So after one season, the league collapsed, and in their only season of play, the Monrovians won the championship. So, in 1925, with no league games to fill the stadium that the team owned, the Monrovians hit the road, and just prior to the game against the Klan, they began a six-day barnstorming tour through western Oklahoma. They would go 3-3 three and three on the tour, losing to Alba, Kiowa, and Tacoma, and beating Woodward, Wainoka, and Alba. After the trip... The club in dire need of cash announced they are open to any and all challengers. An invitation that would lead to the historic matchup versus the Wichita Clan number six. So, the story goes that 
Oklahoma based Klansman, then living in uh, Washington. Oklahoma born Klansman, then living in Wichita, whose name has been lost in the wind. Here's of this challenge issued by the Monrovians and accepts the challenge. And based on coming off the road tour, as well as the dissolution of the Colored Western League, the team needed playing dates and a hometown gate to cash in on. So, the Monrovians case, the reason for playing the game was simple. They needed money. As for the clan's reasoning for playing this game, it was a gimmick, purely as a public relations ploy. The clan was in desperate need for some positive press. In 1924, a steamed intellectual and author, author William Allen White ran for governor of Kansas on an aggressive anti-KKK platform. Now, he was an independent, so he never really had a chance, but he got 34% of the vote. But he did raise awareness about the de- domestic terrorist organization, and it resonated throughout Kansas. The state was quickly becoming anti-KKK, and the hate group was in jeopardy of losing their charter status in the state of Kansas. And the Klan was looking for any good publicity they could find, and uh, you know, and an image repair to help reestablish its future in Kansas. So, the answer to the why, in simpler terms, is the Klan was trying to present themselves as not just hooded demagogues that perpetrate violence on the blacks, Jews, foreigners, homosexuals, sex workers, and anyone else they didn't fit into their white Protestant bubble, but. They wanted to come off as a softer and ideologically fair entity that had the ability to work with others, even the ones they perceived as less than human. So, on the surface, it may appear that the Wichita all-black team was doing the Klan a favor, but most assuredly, the Monrovians cared very little about the Klan's goals or destiny. By participating in South... But the game... In their mind, would most likely be a hot ticket, 1925, Wichita, and the ball club figured, a bucket, there, there's money to be made here, and so they accept it. An article from the Wichita Beacon resides in the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, that reads, quote, Only baseball is on tap at Island Park tomorrow. Strangleholds, razors, horsewhips, and others... Uh, other implements of argument will be barred. Any player stepping into the batter's box with a cross in their hand will be thrown out. End quote. And when I read this article, my my determination was that the piece was written tongue-in-cheek, but it probably needed to be said. And here we are, Seamheads, coming through that wormhole... Round the corner, this is Ackerman Island, like I told you, Island Park, this magnificent baseball structure, used to sit right here on a natural sandbar in the middle of the Arkansas River, and here we are, June 21st, in the year of our Lord, 1925, the legacy of the Monrovians is one that's built around mystique. So little has been uncovered about their existence that we must rely on our imagination to fill the gaps in some places. 
the mystique and the aura that surrounds their history and tradition, it grows because of what we do know. But for me, they truly come to life because of what we have all lost with time. Sadly, this team and facets of their game in particular have faded into the pages of history. So I'm going to take a little break here, freaks. Now that we are here outside the walls of Island Park, listening to the crowd reactions, I'm going to hydrate, figure out the course for the rest of this fascinating story. Don't go anywhere, CMEDS. BRB. See you on the other side of the break. Please support the grassroots sponsors that support your grassroots baseball pod. Laparose hand cleaner. No more smelly hands. Tell them all about it, Pod Squatch. There was no place for a lady. On a Sunday afternoon, 1925 on the 21st of June, it was 102 degrees and even hotter in the stands. The day the all-black Monrovians beat the Ku Klux Klan. No strangleholds, no razors, no horse whips were allowed. They put a couple extra policemen in the crowd And other violent instruments of argument were banned The day the all-black Monrovians beat the Ku Klux Klan The Klan was not too popular in Kansas at the time They'd already been exposed for the racketeering crimes And in Wichita they didn't seem to have a lot of fans The day the all-black Monrovians beat the Ku Klux Klan Only baseball would be on tap at Island Park that day Ran the headline in the beacon on the morning they would play They were trying to head off trouble before the game began The day the all-black Monrovians beat the Ku Klux Klan The Umps were Irish Catholic, they favored neither side not there on the field, the rules were evenly applied. It was a very good game of baseball, said the newspaper man. The day the all-black Monrovians beat the Ku Klux Klan. It was a seesaw battle, the pitchers go through four. The Monrovians would break it open, ten to eight the score, and then drive off in jalopies and not those nice sedans. They the all black Monrovians beat the Ku Klux Klan. They the all black Monrovians beat the Ku Klux Klan. 
Howdy, y'all. It's the Pod Squad, Gage Gein, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Laparose Hand Cleaners, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors, as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crabs and delicious crawfish boils. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand cleaner. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy foods or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fishing hand cleaner get rid of bait funk, a fish hand cleaner, wing hand cleaner, removes the spicy things around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September, Laparose Hand Cleaner is offering all BKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal, hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap, seafood hand cleaners. Buy one, get one. We only advertise products on Backwards K Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there's nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, please use the code SUMMER23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, Get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelly, spicy hands. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to BKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey mom, where are my poles at? I'm gone fishing. Incorporated. This is Lori. Uh, yes, uh, hello. I was uh, calling about this uh, new Barbie, this uh, Major League Baseball Barbie. I mean, uh, what's okay. the deal? What, what kind of message are you people at Mattel trying to give to the little girls out there? It's a positive message we're trying to send out to all the little girls about women in sport. Oh, gee, well, come on. You know, we all know that girls who play softball are predominantly lesbian. I mean, you know, why don't you predominantly just... Predominantly what? Lesbian. I mean, why don't you just come right out and say it? New Bulldike Barbie. I mean, that's what it is. Baseball Barbie is just a ruse by you left-wing fanatics to get my granddaughter to play with a lesbian doll. I'm sorry, sir. That's not. That's not at all what we're trying to convey. Can you sit there and honestly tell me with a straight face that Major League Barbie's baseball bat doesn't double as a strap-on dildo? Incorporated. This is Laurie. Yes, uh, we seem to have been disconnected. Look, uh, about this baseball Barbie. I mean, I mean, Barbie used to be the all-American girl, and, and now you got she's still the all-American girl, sir. Yeah, now you got Bulldog baseball Barbie, uh, WNBA Barbie, who's black and gay. You got Earring Ken, who's a flaming faggot. I mean, you got a whole multicultural homo bisexual orgy going on right there in the dugout. You know, Barbie represents America. Well, that's not the kind of America I want to live in. It's disgusting. I've got a half a mind to line up queer Ken and both Butch Barbies 
and have my G.I. Joe firing squad put them out of their misery. Sir, um, we're just trying to portray to little girls that they can play sports, they can do anything they want. There's absolutely no sexual preferences in any of our dolls. Look, all I know is I left my baseball Barbie alone for five minutes yesterday, and when I come back in the room, she's having a tour at 69 with a Cabbage Patch doll. You play with Barbie dolls, sir? Well, well, maybe I do. I mean, I've been a Mattel customer for 40 years now, and, and I want someone to listen to Sir, me. Sir, your, your complaint has been registered. Yeah, well, I'm not done complaining. What is your name? My name's Ned. Now, listen, I mean, you know, what's up with this? I mean, you, you used to have a normal Barbie, normal Ken, but now it's just a big f***ing Rainbow Coalition Sir. freak show. I mean, you got Cripple Barbie pitching the queer Ken while Black Barbie and Baseball Barbie make out in the bullpen. Uh, epileptic Barbie's flopping around like a fish in the old deck circle. Hello? Mattel Incorporated. Yes, uh, instead of all these phony baloney Barbies, why don't you be more realistic? Ned, Barbie is... I mean, how about bulimic Barbie? You know, an all-American toy. You think Barbie gets that 13-inch waist doing f***ing jazzercise? Sir? Come on, bulimic Barbie complete with miniature toilet. Domestic violence Ken punching a hole in the bathroom wall sold separately. Hello? Mattel Incorporated, this is Lori. Yes, uh, my baseball Barbie uh, is defective. You have a defective Barbie? Yes, her mouth doesn't open. They're not supposed to open, sir. Well, what good is a lesbian Barbie if she ain't got a six-inch tongue? Mattel Incorporated, this is Lori. Yes, uh, does uh, baseball Barbie come with the instructions? Because I've had her for two weeks, and I can't, for the life of me, find her G-spot. Her what? Incorporated. Uh, yes, uh, does a baseball barbie uh, come Ned. with balls? Yes, she does. Good, because uh, Ken needs to borrow them. Ken ain't got no balls. <laughs> I mean, I cut his belly open and everything. Couldn't find him. He's a fucking eunuch. Hello? God damn it! Let's get it up! I'ma get wicked. Come on. Yeah. Brother's gonna work it out. 
Okay, freaks. Welcome back to Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. And before I broke, I was telling you all about the riveting backstory leading up to April 21st, 1925. The contest between the Wichita Ku Klux Klan number 6 and the talented all-black team known as the Wichita Monrovians of the Western Colored League. And unfortunately, after one season, the league implodes after much infighting amongst the owners. The Monrovians were more than just a baseball team. They were an institution in the closed-knit black neighborhood of Wichita as the community looked to them for not only entertainment in their heavy lives, but they were also monetarily influential as they shared their profits with black-owned businesses in the hood. There were also... They were also one of the few Negro League teams in America that 100% owned their own stadium. And while this was surely a point of pride by the team and the community for their black-owned stadium, it, it did present a problem when the Western Color League folded because the teams uh, counted on... Uh, you know, it was a problem because the team counted on scheduled games in their part to draw revenue. And it wasn't just a problem for the team. It also affected the community that the team embraced because the Monrovians, Monrovians graciously shared the wealth. And they too had jobs and families in the city. So after a barnstorming tour in Oklahoma, the Monrovians began thinking of ways to generate crowds in their own home park. And they issue a challenge out to any baseball team in the state of Kansas, black or white, to come on into Wichita and try to beat them. Little did they know that the Wichita chapter for Ku Klux Klan number 6 would accept their challenge. And by all accounts, the Monrovians accepted the challenge without hesitation. They had played numerous white teams and had beaten the majority of them. So they were not intimidated by their play to take them on. They also figured that the fascination of the game would draw a huge crowd, which meant a huge gate and stacks of cash. Now, the Klan, on the other hand, was motivated to play the game for a set of totally different reasons. During the early 20s, the usually racially ambiguous state of Kansas saw a rise in Ku Klux Klan membership, but it also saw a rise in rebellion against the hateful tactics. In January of 1925, Kansas becomes the first state to ban the Ku Klux Klan when their state Supreme Court prohibited him from doing business in the state without a charter, declaring them a foreign corporation that was a sales organization and not some benevolent group. The state legislat legislators ostensibly ruled that they couldn't do business in the state unless they had expressed permission by the state. Of course, the Klan then went before the state legislators. They bailed in the, uh, the Supreme Court of the land. They, they go before the state legislators and they ask for permission to do business in Kansas and they were denied. Until they could secure a charter. So they apply for the charter. And they're denied. And that ruling comes 18 days before this historical matchup. 
the state denies Kansas, uh, the state of Kansas denies the KKK a charter. And the Klan is looking for any good publicity and image repair to rebuild its future in Wichita, where it had about 5,000 known members at the time in the Ku Klux Klan, with a total black population of a little over 6,000 people. Estimates suggest that there were over 60,000 members in the state in 1920, with 30 different chapters sprawled across the Kansas landscape. So, instead of not hating on others, the organization figured, well, what the hell, let's play baseball. So, the Klan was motivated by public perception and image to be on their best behavior amongst the subhumans when the game finally popped up. And as I'm telling you this story, I'm trying to put my, my wrap my head around, you know, some of the feelings and the emotion of the time. And I can only imagine the angst in the black community of Wichita the night before this game. Uh, it had to be a hundred thousand prayers that must have fallen on God's ear as the Monrovians fans surely were pleading the night before to not lose to the fucking JKK. Unfortunately, after almost a hundred years, the sands of time have swallowed up the game's particulars. There, there is no box score, no word of mouth witnesses still alive, there is no audio or video. There's barely a two-line blurb about it in the Wichita Eagle newspaper the next day. Because of this, we must stand outside the walls of Island Park and imagine the sights and smells of this historical game like everyone else in the audience. This really is a magnificent old-timey stadium, though. So, if you're not here to see it, you should definitely go to your Google machine and look up Island Stadium on Ackerman Island. And... Before I get to the game, I want to tell you about the stadium grounds here. Where I'm standing. There used to be a ballpark here. Now in 2023, it's in the middle of the Arkansas River. If you look west while crossing the Douglas Street Bridge and look directly to your right in the middle of the river to the west bank, that is where the white semi-pro teams in Wichita played. And... It would be the site of this epic matchup. Now, the sandbar began to form in the 1870s due to the drop in water level of the Arkansas. Joseph Ackerman, a rich local businessman, he acquires the island in 1890. Fifteen years later, he would sell the island, and in 1905, the Wonderland Amusement Park was built on the island, and it featured the longest roller coaster in the world during its day, called the Giant Thriller. The amusement park complex that also featured a swimming pool on the grounds, a vaudeville theater, a dance pavilion, a roller rink, and a collection of larger-than-life statues acquired from the St. Louis 1904 World's Fair. And that park would remain in operations until 1918. In 1912... The Island Park Baseball Stadium was built on the island as well, and it would expand to 5,000 seats over the course of her history. From 1912 to 1933, Island Park saw some of the biggest baseball stars and teams as any other yard of her day. By the early 1930s, concerns over flooding from the now rising water table of the Arkansas led to the island and stadium's demise. And if you're ever in Wichita, 
Launch your drone and set the coordinates for 37.687309 degrees north by 97.345363 degrees west. And you will be directly above the ghost of Island Park. After tearing the ballpark down, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, Works Progress Administration hired 1,500 unemployed men to remove the sandbar by taking the east side of the island and filling in the west channel of the Arkansas River. So, if you're standing on the west bank of the river, you are ostensibly standing where the stadium once stood. After the death of Island Park, the city built a new park uh, in 1934, just down the road, called Lawrence Dumont Stadium, which housed the next generation of Wichita Pro Baseball games until 2018. And the city now has Riverfront Stadium, home of the Wichita Wind Surge, a minor league affiliate of the Minnesota Twins. And finally, let's talk about the game. As you can tell, folks, it's sweltering hot out here, 102 degrees at game time. And Island Park is packed to the rafters with a complete integration of blacks and whites sitting side by side rooting on their team. By most accounts, most of the fans in attendance, white and black, were rooting for the Monrovians. The early innings saw pitcher dull as the two teams were deadlocked in a one-to-one tie in the fifth inning. From the sixth inning on, the bats exploded as the pitchers may have simply been tiring out and the oppressive 102 degree heat. The umpires were World War I veterans W.W. Irish Garrity and Dan Dwyer. And the Wichita clan hope was that this agreement on the umpire would be perceived as a gesture of goodwill and compromise. By having the authority figures of the game being Irish Catholic, a group targeted by the staunch Protestant clan. In other words, the KKK could be like, see, we get along with these Irish Catholics. We can get along with you despite our differences. After the 1-1 stalemate through 5, both offenses warm up. Both teams saw their pitchers melt. And when the dust had settled, the Wichita Monrovians had defeated Wichita clan number 6 by the final score of 10-8. At this time, 1925, we're talking about Black baseball was simply almost never covered by mainstream media, which at that time for the city of Wichita was the Eagle and the Beacon. But black media didn't cover the game either, nor did the Klan Courier cover the game as they probably wanted to keep their loss a secret from other chapters around the country. What should be typically the main part of the historical record, as well as my research, It just doesn't exist. And even though I can't tell you one player on the Klan roster or who had the game-winning rib, there are a few things of note that have been passed down about this game. There were zero incidents of violence in the the stands or on the field that day. And the proceeds were donated to the Phyllis Wheatley Children's Home. While there was literally a two-sentence blurb under the headline that read, Monrovians beat the KKK the next day the Eagle. A report was published a few days later in the very same paper, describing the game as the best attended and most interesting game played in Wichita in years. A seesaw battle that began as a pitcher's duel and ended with a blizzard of scoring. 
the Wichita Monroeans existed in a time when historical records about their achievements were kept, were kept, weren't kept, but their legacy endures with their triumph over hate almost a hundred years ago. The all-black team won just by showing up. The Ku Klux Klan lost by simply existing. The Monrovians won the slugfest that day, taking a place in American history. But the history's in peril. Someone needs to, you know, I don't know, put this on audio. Protect this history at all costs. And I think that's where I'm going to twist it up like 643 I'm ecstatic to have this in my collection of stories. Especially with every flip of the calendar. This, this story should never be forgotten. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, dust in the wind. That's, that's what happens, right? So, folks, I'm grateful to have this audience of CMEDS to share the story with. Thank you for taking time out of your 24-hour day to listen to me pontificate the seams. And I promise, freaks, I'll try to be better next week. So... Let's all get back on the BKP time travel choo-choo so I can get you back to your loved ones patiently waiting at Terrapin Station as we pull off from 1925 Wichita, Kansas Island Park. I can see the KKK versus the Monrovians game getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror. I now turn our my attention to our never-say-die baseball Hydra I reach under my kimono, grab my katana blade, and chop the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. And we haven't done a throwback crib in a minute, right? I guess the last one I did was Old Comiskey Park back in June. So, let's do one of those. Is Brooklyn in the house Next week, we're going to Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York. I mean, what kind of collection of throwback cribs can you possibly have without Ebbets Field, right? I can't wait to learn about this baseball cathedral and then tell you guys all about it. But look, y'all know the deal. That's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. I will never charge you freaks for the baseball content here at BKP. Information is power. I want all C-Meds to wield true baseball power. My mission in life is to preach the gospel of baseball around the globe. Maybe spark something inside someone who's learning the game. Now I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent. Like Ronald Acuna, baby. And I've been getting a lot of messages lately on the show. Thank you all. So, you got something you want to say to me? Good, bad, and different? Maybe you have some knowledge about this game we just talked about that I may have missed or I didn't mention. By all means, drop me a line. I'm fascinated by this story. There's a couple ways you can make that happen. The show is, uh, the email is backwardskpod at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal handle is at jrobbie1. Our TikTok and YouTube YouTube channels are backwards Pod, Or you can simply visit me at the most interactive and comprehensive baseball group on Facebook. 
the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. And I was speaking to a fan of the show, Andrew Carpenter, out of Topeka, Kansas. And he told me he was going through medical issues with his mother. So I just want to give the Carpenters a shout out and let them know that they are in my prayers. God bless you, kid. Oh, and by the way, I just checked the score of that game at Chavez Ravine, and it's a final. The Snakes take two games to none advantage of the Dodgers with a 4-2 victory. So there you go. And look, I think I've accomplished the goals I set for myself in the presentation of the show. And seriously, if anyone out there knows more about this game, please let me know. I'm sure my dudes, Johnny Haynes or Bob Poet, are ready to lay the smackdown on my monkey ass with that knowledge. Bring it. I know the show is a little different, but I feel like I gave you what I know and I left no stone untouched in the research, and I can live with that. Vinny, Vinny, Missy. In the immortal words of Holy Julius Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. Parents. If you see your kids sitting on the couch looking bored and unproductive AF, by all means, take those little rugrats outside. Play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shea Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year, you go to hell, independent. Evans Field next week, freaks. Peace.